I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. And I'm your other co-host, Dean Ditloff. All right, folks, we've got a very sexual podcast today. <laughs> <laughs> a great energy to start off. Yeah, a really uncomfortable energy for me, but that's okay. <laughs> this week on the podcast, we've got Brian G. Murphy and Shannon T.L. Kearns uh, from QueerTheology.com. Uh, where they have a cool podcast and all kinds of other really great resources for uh, queer theology. It's a cool conversation that I think goes to places that our podcast often doesn't and can't because of, um, I don't know, life uh, situations of Dean and I. And I think that's good. It's a good thing uh, to have a, a more interesting and expansive conversation. And uh, I, for one, am here for it. Same. Uh, it's good to figure out just how repressed I am in conversation with other people. And that is uh, genuinely useful to me. I really liked it. It was a lot of fun. Um, and we haven't had guests on the show in a long time either. So it's been nice to just get some other voices in the conversation. Um, however, if you wanted to hear even more of just Matt and I, what a segue. How about that? Uh, <laughs> you could uh, sign up to our Patreon where you can support us uh, at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. And there we have a, an extra podcast that we do once a month called The Magnificast Lock-In. It's great. It's a bunch of goofs and spoofs about Christian culture and current events and all your good Marxist leftist Christian takes. Um, we've also got a great Discord community that you can get plugged into through that Patreon. And people are talking about everything from, uh, I don't know, what's going on in the Discord lately, Matt? Some great recipes going around. You posted some good dog video. Um, love seeing That's that. That's right. A lot of dog videos lately. It's a lot just of, for me, specifically. A lot of dog videos. Um, some really good book reviews. Been enjoying that. Just finding out what people are reading. Uh, lots of good stuff over there. You can get it all at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Man, in the years that we've been doing this Patreon podcast, why have we never leaned into the goofs and spoofs tagline? I think that's great. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make sure I, I add that to the mythos of the uh, the Patreon podcast. All right. Well, before we get uh, too far down the rabbit hole and more and more digressions, uh, let's go to Brian and Shannon and get to this great conversation. Welcome to the show, Brian and Shannon. It's good to have you both on. Um, whenever we have a new guest on the show or new guests on the show, we always ask them to give an elevator pitch to introduce themselves and their work. So supposing that this is like a very long elevator and we're going to go to the top floor, um, how would you both introduce yourselves and uh, your work and uh, how would you tell us what you're all about? Sure. Well, my name's Brian G. Murphy, uh, pronouns that 
I used to describe myself are he, him, his, or they, them, theirs. And uh, I'm joined by my queertheology.com co-founder, Father Shea, who can introduce himself in just a second. But I would say that um, we work at the intersections of spirituality and sexuality and gender, mostly from a like Christian and post-Christian background that takes, is it okay to be queer as the starting point rather than the finish line in the conversation and looks for ways in which our queerness can enrich our spirituality and our spirituality can enrich our queerness um, and help folks recover from purity culture, unpack shame, build thriving relationships with other people, with their bodies, set and maintain healthy boundaries with their families and have like practices that support sort of their thriving. Yeah, and we've been doing this work now for we're coming up on ten years, ten year or ten year anniversary, um, and so we we've been doing that work through a variety of of means. We have uh, a, a podcast that for the first six years was looking at the lectionary, and now is more broadly looking at the Bible and um, having a lot of guests and conversations. We have online courses and an online community, um, and lots and lots of resources for. Folks who are on the journey for allies and church leaders um, and and everyone across the board. So cool. Well, welcome. Glad to have both of you here. And 10 years is a long time. Uh, lots of really cool stuff I'm sure that you've done in that decade. Yeah. Uh, lots of things to look <laughs> back on. Yeah, I had never heard of you before I met Matt. And then Matt was telling me that he had been uh, reading some of your stuff for a long time. So it's been fun to get to know some of that as well. Um, we've talked about queer theology a handful of times on this podcast with a number of guests who are better equipped to do that than the two of us <laughs> for lots of reasons. Um, but you've got the website, you have the domain name. And so I feel like we should just start there. Um, how would you characterize queer theology? What's it about? Why is it important? Um, if you had to, you know, just sort of tell somebody in a, a nutshell, like how might you pitch that to them? Yeah, so we always talk um, about queer theology from a definition by the Reverend Dr. Patrick Chang, who wrote a book called Radical Love. And he talks about um, the use of the word queer as a verb, that to queer something is to um, challenge it, to challenge the status quo, and that to do queer theology is to lift up the voices that had previously been silenced, discarded, or ignored. And so that's like a really simple way of saying we think that queer theology starts from a place that centers queer and trans lives and experiences that does theology from our first person perspectives, um, but that isn't just for queer and trans folks, that, that us doing theology from our unique perspectives actually opens up something really beautiful for straight and cisgender folks as well. And it feels important to note that, like, there is an entire academic discipline of queer theology. And then there are queer theologians like Brian and I and folks that are kind of doing this work in lots and lots of ways. We did get lucky enough to buy the domain name, but we are obviously not the creators of this academic discipline. Uh, but our work has really been centered on taking the incredible work that's being done in the academy but also making it really, really accessible to people who aren't from academic backgrounds and, and really grounding it in like, what does queer theology do for us practically in our bodies, in our churches here now today? 
Yeah, all of what Shay said that like historically queer theology has been an academic discipline, but we recognize the ways in which it can like transform everyone's lives. And that like you don't we don't think that you have to like go to seminary or get a Ph.D. to sort of do queer theology, to wrestle with theology queerly um, or queerness theologically. And that doing that on any level in any way can enrich your life. Um, even I think if you don't necessarily identify as like a Christian still that like we all move through the world informed by out religion outside of ourselves and also move through the world in sort of like religiously ways, even if it's not a formal religion. And so paying attention to that, um, I think is like, like a good practice for everyone. And so that's why, that's why we started this project. Like Shay said to, to make the like academic accessible. Yeah, that's cool. Making the academic accessible. It's a great goal. It's something to definitely strive for. I, I guess, what does that look like in your work? Like, um, what does it mean to do queer theology, like outside of, outside of academia, right? Like, what does it mean to like really put it into practice uh, in, in your work? Yeah. So I think our work has two main focuses. One is doing queer theology, creating queer theology. So in the same way that academics are creating queer theology, we are also strive to create new original queer theology. Um, and to, to be academically rigorous about it, we both studied religion in different capacities, um, myself an undergraduate, Shay, both an undergrad and at seminary. Um, so to sort of do that like academically rigorously and to cite our sources um, and to be like specific about it, but also to, you know, find ways to do that that doesn't rely on using words like hermeneutics all the time. <laughs> um, that like to, 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 to put the words in words that everyday folks can understand, but to still do, at the essence, I think we're still doing the same sort of work that more sort of proper queer theologians, traditional queer theologians like Dr. Patrick Chang or Marcella Althaus-Reed are doing. So that's like one part of it is doing this, but so that instead of like writing, you know, dissertations and like book articles for academic journals and really dense academic books, we're, you know, writing articles and emails and making videos, um, and doing talks and recording podcasts. Um, and then the other part, portion of our work is teaching people to do queer theology also so that you don't have to have studied religion in college or at seminary in order to like access this practice, which we think is healing and liberatory and life-giving and can fuel activism if you want it to, can fuel your relationships. And so teaching people, sometimes we just call it like sacred storytelling because queer theology, you know, is, can be, feel intimidating to folks. Um, to, to, for people to, to find their own connection to sacred stories and find those parallels and to tell their own queer sacred story um, at whether that's to their journal, to their group of friends, just to the other participants in a class with us, or like to put on Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or their own podcast or to start a blog, whatever that might be for, for them. Um, so like both like doing and teaching, right? These are two big buckets of our work, I would say. I like that, especially that emphasis on the, the utility of it and the creativity of it and trying to proliferate some more expressions and kind of making that an exciting thing that I think that's so cool. Um, I am tempted to ask like a quasi academic question. I'm trying to figure out if I should follow it. I, I guess I'm just going to give into it. It's Lent, but I'm yeah. going to do it anyway. Um, you know, you, you brought up, uh, Marcel Althus Reed and we talk a lot about liberation theology and fascinating, oh, I mean, liberation theology, queer theology, uh, you know, maybe a Venn diagram kind of thing. And uh, that emphasis, too, on theology coming out of lived experience, coming out of marginalized experience and so on, it just feels like 
that's a pretty natural affinity. Could you guys talk a little bit more about that? Like, how do those discourses or motifs or however you want to put it, how do they kind of come together? Yeah, I mean, I feel like we consider ourselves siblings to all liberation theologies and theologians, right? That, that it's it, it's the, all of the same impulse. And that something actually really powerful happens when we put all of the theologies that are coming from particular places into conversation with one another. Because, like, there's something really powerful f- from that I learn about myself from reading Black theologians and that I learn from reading womanist theologians and Latin American liberation theologians, right? Like, that all of that is is stuff that I'm learning about my own power and privilege and the ways that I need to give that away and be in solidarity and be an accomplice with other people. Um, and that that also informs my work. And so like, I think all of it is, I, it's not even a Venn diagram for me, right? It's like a circle. It's like circles layered on top of each other. Um, but that that we don't feel like we're inventing or starting anything new, that we are simply in conversation with all of this work that's been being done for a really long time. We're just naming the particular place and location that we come from. Um, And also very aware that, like, we're not the only people doing queer theology and that there are other, there are other, like, intersections of identity of folks that obviously are not represented. Brian and I are both white. We're both male presenting. Um, And so, like, it's important that we're, I, I think in the, what we're trying to do in the teaching space especially is to, like, equip and empower other people to say that, like, you can do this work too. And we actually really need you to do this work. We need your voices. We need your stories. We need your particular lived experience and the ways that you see theology, because like, that's important for the growth of us, right? Like it's, it all, we need all of us doing this work um, to be fully informed and to be fully in solidarity with one another. Yeah. Like I have a, I made a video a few years ago called Jesus is polyamorous. Right. Um, but I also like, we can also talk about Jesus being asexual or Jesus being trans or Jesus being gay. And like, we need, there's not like one correct interpretation. And I think for those of us who either like grew up with, or just familiar with conservative religion, right. There's this idea that like you read this one passage and there's like, you have to figure out like the right answer for it. And actually it's like, you can read this one passage and there's just like layer after layer, after layer, after layer, after layer, meaning that you can pull from it. And like, whenever we, when we were doing the podcast that followed the lectionary, you know, between Shannon and I, we would have like a few different things that we could say about any given passage. And that's just the two of us. And then like, when you add in everyone else's experiences and their perspectives, like there's, there's, you know, so many more perspectives and that sort of like, I think chorus of voices is like, gives us a more full picture of of each other and of the divine. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think that's something that Dean and I have found on this podcast as well, that the Bible is, you know, not exhaustive as a text, right? There's always something a little bit more that it can give you in a different situation and in light of different circumstances. But like you said a minute ago, right, it's hard to teach people that. Um, I wonder how that's worked out in in your work, like, you know, coming, coming to the table with uh, queer theology and kind of encouraging people to be creative with it and to um, read the Bible in these different ways. Like how, how does that work out for you all? Um, do you feel like you get pushback from people very often? Like, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned it even at the top of the show that, that you're doing work for people who are Christian and post-Christian. And I, and I wonder like, um, does that approach to the Bible, like, uh, does it rub against people in a way that is productive or unproductive? I don't, I don't know. What do you think? 
it's all of the above, <laughs> right? I mean, yes. we've we've gotten everything <laughs> yeah. from like hate mail and death threats um, from people who are you know really upset about queer readings of scripture to folks who. Um, for whom it, doing this work, it makes them really uncomfortable because it's, we're not giving one right answer. We're inviting them into the mystery. And it's it's a lot easier to be given an answer and be told this is what to believe. Um, to folks who I, I think are, are reticent or nervous about bringing their own selves to the text because they've been taught for so long that like this is not a story for them that they aren't allowed to see themselves in it. Um, and, and I think that like, it's in that latter part where we can really kind of get in the mix with someone and that really generative and beautiful things happen. Um, the, the death threat folks, we just try to block and move on. But, um, but I think, you know, the, the important piece of all of this to me is, is what Brian said earlier that like, this is, grounded in scholarship. This is grounded in um, rigor. Like we take the Bible incredibly seriously and we're not trying to read things into the text that aren't there. What we're trying to do is pay attention to what is already there. Um, and I think that like once folks understand that that's what they're do- we're, we're doing, they, they tend to be a little bit more open to it. Um, and if they aren't open to that, then it's, they're, our work is not for them anyway. Like that's, we're, we're just never going to have a, a fruitful conversation with someone who reads the Bible as inerrant and infallible. Like that's just not, we don't think that that's a good way to read the text. Um, so we're not going to do that. Yeah. And one of the things that Shannon often says is that all theology has a context. It's just that like queer folks and, and women and black folks and Latinx folks, like either, those labels are put on them or they just have to label themselves as that. But actually like mainstream Christian theology is white male European theology. We just don't call it that, right? We call it like Christian theology. And so part of our our work and the work of everyone is to like recognize that like the way you've been like taught to read the Bible or the plain meaning of scripture or the literal meaning of scripture or whatever it might be is actually someone's equally biased perspective on scripture they've just convinced us all that that's the objective truth and so i think part of queering theology is also to name like this is our theology and this is your theology too i mean once you start to recognize that like oh the straight white male pastors are also reading scripture from their context and looking for themselves in scripture like what we're doing is not any different than they're than they are they just have the power Yeah, well, maybe that's a great segue to ask you a little bit about how that does open up some of the scriptures. Um, You know, I'm a person totally, completely socialized as a white heterosexual male um, growing up in the U.S. and now living in Canada. And as try as I might, uh, I'm sure there are all kinds of really wild uh, things I'm missing out on uh, by reading the Bible with that kind of background and, and not being attuned to some of the things that you guys are able to uh, to pull out and parse out. So what might be some some things that you found to be really like interesting, helpful, uh, something that maybe an average reader like me would would miss or, or not be able to, to appreciate? 
Oh man, I'm going to set Shay up for this because, so the first time that I, this, this is our little, like, you're going to have to deal with our shtick. Like, I don't remember the first time we met, Shay and I actually met. Um, <laughs> but the first time I remember meeting Shay was one of our, our good mutual friends brought me to hear Shay speak to preach at us at, at Judson, Judson Memorial in New York City. And he was co-preaching this sermon on Ezekiel on the dry bones. And when it ended, I was like, holy shit. That was like brand new theology. It was not like some pastor telling some story that he like read in chicken soup for the soul or that like he heard one of his preaching professors like teacher. It wasn't like a remix of some book he read. Like Shay just like whoop, like reached into his life and pulled this out. Um, And you know, part of it was about bodies and being trans, but I was like, it was informed by Shay's trans experience, but like, I'm not trans. And I was like, Oh, I like, I need more. (laughs) I need more of this. Um, And so like, I've been particularly moved by as a cis person, a lot of Shay's trans theology work. Yeah. And I think, I think what is so beautiful about the work, right. Is that like Brian said, it's, it's rooted in trans experience, but it actually opens up something really beautiful for people who aren't trans. Um, and that's that's what got me hooked on doing queer theology because I, I told a story in seminary and I saw my classmates who were not trans, their faces light up. And I was like, oh, there's something really powerful happening here. Um, so when I was talking about the, the Ezekiel passage, you know, I grew up in a tradition, I grew up a fundamentalist evangelical in a tradition that very much um, was not great about bodies, right? It was like, you just tolerate your flesh and your flesh is evil. And then when you get to go to heaven, like you'll get an all new spiritual body and like your body doesn't matter. Um, and and growing up trans as someone who like didn't particularly like my body, it was really easy to hold on to that theology because it was like, look, I'm just being super holy and spiritual and I don't ever have to think about my body. But then when I started to transition, I was like, oh, I am actually an embodied human and like I'm feeling all of these things again and like I have to actually deal with my body. And I was reading that Ezekiel passage, which is the one where Ezekiel is brought to a field of dry bones and he's told to um, speak to the bones and to make them live. And he speaks to the bones and the bones reconnect and the whole host of an army stands up again. And, you know, growing up, I had always been taught that that, that it was like he had a field of dancing skeletons. And if you like Google that passage, all of the art is like dancing skeletons. But if you actually read the text, like these bodies came fully alive with like skin and sinew and muscle and breath. And I just had this moment of like, oh, God actually really does care about our bodies. And that this idea of God caring so deeply about a community to bring their bodies back from exile so that they wouldn't be separated. Like there's something really holy in that, that I feel in my own trans experience that I'm being brought back from exile and being reunited with my own body. But then the challenge of that sermon became there are a whole lot of bodies that are still not resurrected. And so it becomes our job to go speak to those bones and to ask the question, you know, who will make these bones live? And and our response should be, it's on us to go out and to do the work of justice to make sure that everyone can be brought back from exile. Um, so that was one of the first pieces that I that I did around, like, bringing my own experience to a text. And it 
it was transformative for me. And I think it was also like transformative when I shared it for other people. And I was like, oh, this is like, this is the juice. Like, this is how we do this work. Um, And it's not about necessarily looking for trans stories or gay characters. It's about what does the essence of transness or the essence of queerness, like how can we find that already reflected in these texts and bring that out in a really powerful way? I'm sold. Uh, I'm convinced. It was great. Loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a really compelling story, I think. I mean, that's such a cool through line, though, I think, in, in lots of other sort of types of liberation theology, right? Bringing you know, how how do we see ourselves in the text, whether it's, you know, the poor, it's, you know, the oppressed and, and so on, right? Um, and, and how can we tell our stories uh, alongside that text? Um, it's great. It's great to see those overlapping circles, um, like you're saying earlier. Well, something else I, I think it'd be interesting to talk with you both about is that um, maybe this is kind of like an apologetics question, or it's a question about apologetics, maybe. Like, um, conversations that I often see that revolve around LGBTQ people and Christianity, they always get stopped like really short uh, because I mean, for pretty clear reasons, like queer people are just trying to like fight for their recognition as people sometimes. Um, and then a lot of conversations just get like bottled up at really mm-hmm. surface all the questions like, can a Christian be gay or can a Christian yeah. be trans? Right. These like very uh, top line sort of things. And those questions are fine and good and people need to answer them. And I think that's great, but they also seem to be like, you know, shallow right? just like can these people exist like yes or no so i guess what kind of deeper questions i think are are the rest of us missing out on because we're too busy just like arguing about these things like wh- what else what else is under the surface that we should be paying attention to oh man i love this question because when one of the reasons why we started this project was like it's just wild to me how much the conversation has moved over the past 10 years that when we first started it the entirety of the public conversation around LGBTQ issues and Christianity was like, is it okay to be gay and Christian? Is it okay to be trans and Christian? Can you be LGBTQ? Like side A versus side B. Let's debate it. The great debate. And we were like, F this. (laughs) We like are not interested in having this conversation. We find it boring. We find it reductive. We find it actually like spiritually violent to subject to like to subject queer people to questioning like their inherent humanity. And also like this question has been asked and answered like decades ago. Right. Um, And when people talk, like do do teachings on it, it's like, it's not like someone found some new copy of the Bible that doesn't have Leviticus 18 in it. Right. Like all of the same arguments are ones that have been around since like at least the seventies, if not earlier. So like we have all of the data. Um, and so like, if there was a magic way to explain away the quote unquote, like the clobber passages, like we would have found it already. So like, we have to like stop doing this thing that is like very clearly not working, which is debating clobber passages over and over and over again. It's just like running your head into a wall. Um, and so I think that when we like move beyond that, some questions that like I'm interested in exploring are like, how is God queer? Um, where do you find the sacred in your queerness? How does like how is like sex in particular uh, a sacred experience? Like how do we relate to our bodies as 
temples as having the divine dwelling us as being made in the image of God. Um, what does it look like to be part of a beloved community? How could you like, what can, what can Christians who have the book of acts in their Bible learn about the church and acts from queer communities who form chosen families who like, you know, in the 90s, like in the early 2000s and the aughts, like who were able to get trans people surgeries by way of GoFundMes. Like, you know, Shay often says like, we were, we were passing the same 20 bucks around, you know, on everyone's GoFundMe from like 2005 to 2000, like honestly still until today. Right. But like we, when, when you like share everything amongst you then like, then there are no needy in your midst. I remember rereading acts as a like queer person in Brooklyn living with a bunch of queer friends and doing activism and being like, Oh, like I've never experienced a church in acts in Christianity, but I'm experiencing it. in this sort of like interfaith, some of us are Christian, some of us are Jewish, some of us are atheist, like friend group and extended family network. Um, and I think that like, so also what are the ways in which straight Christianity or straight insert your religion here could be improved and enriched by tapping into the wisdom of queer folks. And I think that there's such there's such a power in queer and trans stories and queer and trans readings of scripture that like just we never get to because we're stuck in this dumb argument that doesn't even like that cedes all of the power to one way of reading scripture, which isn't even the way the vast majority of the world reads scripture. Um, and so I think that like that too is, is, is a, a pushback against like, we don't have, I'm going to take this again. There's something that happens when we get stuck in this 101 defending ourselves conversation and it exhausts queer and trans folks. And I think that that is the point, right? The point isn't actually to have a dialogue or to learn because if someone wanted to have a dialogue or to learn, they could read Is the Homosexual My Neighbor by Virginia Ramey Mullencott, which came out in 1979. And that's the argument. Um, I, I think that the instead it's really designed to play a gotcha game of like, you're not really a Christian. You you don't take your faith seriously. You don't take scripture seriously. And what we have found is actually when we refuse to have that conversation with people, when we've either said, no, you're going to listen to our stories and you're going to listen to us talk about our faith journey, that that has, that has moved the needle much further and much faster. And if someone's not with, willing to listen to our story, then they weren't actually going to listen to us talk about the clobber passages either. And so it, that just refusing to have that conversation has saved us, I think, a lot of time and angst. <laughs> and like one of our big boundary setting things is like, you too do not need to have this conversation. Like you too can point people to an article or a book. And, and I think that like if someone isn't willing to do that work, then they aren't actually interested in having a conversation with you. Um, and so it's it's a protective measure for yourself to like not keep putting your heart out there for, for people who aren't having a conversation or an argument in good faith. And I'll, I'll also say that as, as a, as a cis queer person, I like 
find it frustrating, right? That like I get reduced to sex, right? That's all people want to talk about when it comes to me. Like straight people also have sex lives that like probably need a lot more interest or at least as much introspection um, and critique as queer sex lives. But like no one's asked, like no one's like peppering straight people constantly about their sex lives or if it is, it's in the context of a bunch of other stuff, right? And so like, I want to be like, straight people have sex also. Straight people need to learn about sex. Straight people need to talk about sex. And also, I do think that, like, queer people have some sort of, like, unique wisdom when it comes to sex generally and sex in spirituality in particular. And so I don't want, like, LGBTQ equality or justice or inclusion to mean that, like, queer people also stop talking about sex, just like straight people have stopped talking about sex or that like queer people's sex becomes more like straight people's sex that like, I want to talk about the ways in which like queer, like what did queer people learn about AIDS, both like gay men and bi men who were affected by AIDS that like lost and all of their friends and lovers and sex partners that had to like stare death in the faith and choose love and connection anyways. Like what did what did like lesbians who took care of their like dying gay men learn about that? How, what did we learn about community care? In what ways like did we like have we like worked to undo shame and to name and claim our sexual desires and to be in touch with our bodies and to care about other people and that like there's a lot of power there. I was I was talking to um, a friend of a friend who's who's a rabbi and he was saying like oh yeah like I think that he's straight and he was like I think that like a lot of straight people that I know, we like don't talk about sex. We don't talk during sex. We just kind of like come together and we like do, we like do the sex. And it seems like not all gay people, but like a lot of the gay people that I know, they like think about what they want sexually. They communicate that they like talk during sex. And like, I think that actually like there's something to learn there. And so I think recognizing the unique wisdom that queer people have. And I like my vision for like a more just and equal future is not that, queerness gets subsumed by heterosexuality and straight culture, but that like straightness becomes straight people and straightness itself becomes like more queered. That's great. Um, also I'm straight enough that it is, uh, terrifying for me to hear Ali say those things. Now I have to think about my life and myself <laughs> afterwards, but I guess I'll do that. You're welcome. Um, so I appreciate yeah. that, that gift and challenge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I know, I think that's great too. And what you were saying, Shay, also about like, uh, I guess the the sort of bit about clobber passages and moving on and trying to see the depth uh, that you're dealing with here, Brian, as well, is is so useful. And even in my own experience, like I was a teenage evangelical uh, fundamentalist and, you know, whatever, had all kinds of biblical stuff, but it was encounters with gay friends and so on and hearing their stories and all the rest of it that eventually led me to realize I was bad at reading the Bible, right, in this kind of recursive way, too. And I think that that's great. Um, you mentioned, Brian, sort of the maybe like the shift in conversation you've seen over the decade, right? Starting out with some of those problems and then being able to have this more, I don't know, interesting kind of exploration. Um, it just strikes me that like, it's bad time <laughs> for it, for a lot of things uh, right now, politically speaking, but especially um, trans and other uh, LGBT and queer issues um, in the United States, but also here in Canada, the border is pretty permeable. And, you know, what is it like for you both to be maybe navigating that space and in this kind of public theology way, like, 
um, trying to, yeah, think through that that moment of like being on on the defense and also still wanting to to celebrate those things that you're celebrating. What's it like to sort of do that, you know, outside the academy in that public I mean, terrifying space? <laughs> on one hand? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I think I think for me, the the moment of how far the conversation has gone and shifted and changed is really beautiful in a lot of ways. Like we feel really grateful that there is more openness to, to a larger conversation. Um, and also the backlash against trans folks right now is, is really quite terrifying. Um, and, and I think the, what feels hard for me in particular is the, the overwhelming silence of the church on this issue and even the overwhelming silence of other queer Christians and um, and progressive folks who like, I, I, there's a lot of folks who spend a lot of time telling me how much they love me, uh, but I'm not seeing any concerted effort to like challenge the bills in their state or to even do education um, of their friends and their coworkers. And I think that we're in a time where we really need to be stepping up and paying attention and that, that, um, that these conversations around trans issues like are, are about bodily autonomy and that it's about more than just an attack on trans people, right? Like it's, it's not going to stop with just trans folks. And so to pay attention to the ways in which our, our liberation is bound up together uh, and to make sure that we're doing that solidarity work is really important. It's important for me to to be public uh, for as long as I can. That feels really scary at this moment of like not knowing um, what that's going to look like. I moved to rural Kansas this year and so I'm bordered by Oklahoma, which is now has the house has passed the most regressive of all of the trans bills and Arkansas, which is trying to make it illegal for any trans person to enter any bathroom where a minor might be present, which is like a, a gas station, right? Like it's, it's just, it's, it's intended to legislate us out of existence. And I think that uh, we need folks to be paying attention and we need them to be getting loud and we need them to do it like yesterday, right? That that's, that's really important that, that we um, pay attention to what's happening. Yeah, it just feels important to name that like there is an all out assault on trans people and the like stated and very clear end goal is the eradication of all trans people, whether that means that they are in jail or they're depressed or they're like kill themselves or they're murdered. Um, like the stakes are like that, like that incredibly high. Um, and so like leaving comments on <laughs> Instagram about how like be strong and I love you is like is like not enough. It makes me think of, um, like the prophet Amos, which is like, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Like what I want is justice to roll down. So like every time some straight cis person tells a queer person, they like love them and they haven't like spent a month outside of their legislator's office or every time, even a, a cis queer person tells a trans person, like I support you or like a white person tells a black person that was like, well, like what the fuck are you actually doing? Because like, lives are hanging in the balance here. Um, and like it, it's going to require some action. Right. And like for those of, for those folks who consider themselves Christian, it's like, this is what we're talking about. This, like, this is what the gospels are talking about when it's like, take up your cross and follow me. Right. It doesn't mean like stay in an abusive marriage or like be gay, but be celibate your whole life. It means like 
be willing to like drag your own cross to be crucified um, because like that is what the gospel requires and that is um, what's right. And so I want like more of us to be sticking our necks out on the line um, like more aggressively because like if it's like not my neck, it's like Shay's neck and I, like, I don't want that for him. And I, I think too that the, the, this is, I mean, this is also a moment where, you know, we talk about the importance of queer theology and it's like, this is the work that fuels us and fires us up to be willing to be public and to be willing to do the work. And like, this is when your spiritual practice matters that we talk all the times about like, this is why you have rituals. Like you cultivate them so that when shit hits the fan, you have something to fall back on that keeps you going and that gets you involved in justice. And I think that like in these moments I'm going to speak particularly for trans folks. Like, I think that we need this depth of our theology to keep us alive. And we also need moments of joy and celebration because that too is resistance, right? Like, it's not just, um, it's not just fighting for our lives. It's also fighting for one another and loving each other and showing up for one another and like continuing to exist. Like that too is part of the work. Um, and that, this theological grounding or whatever theological grounding you have or whatever spiritual practice you have, that is the thing to, to draw on right now to keep you alive and resisting and um, present in the face of all of this. Yeah. Um, I think, man, a lot of good stuff here to, to deal with. Yeah. Um, but I guess what this immediately triggers in my mind is that I live in Missouri, so not Kansas or Arkansas, but there are 28 laws that have been introduced to the state legislature in Missouri that specifically target trans people, um, mostly trans kids, um, you know, whether or not they can play sports, whether or not they can receive gender affirming health care and so on. Um, and it's I mean, it's not only is it terrible, it's also like just very stupid. Um, I was talking, though, with a, uh, a sort of activist in this area who's he's a rabbi in um, the St. Louis community um, who's been you know, he goes to the state house to testify every chance he possibly can. And um, anyways, I was talking with him and he was telling me this story about the first time he went to um, testify about a, um, you know, one of these anti-trans bills. It was, I guess, years ago. But he was telling me the story and he said that he was, you know, um, he was in there kind of testifying on on the behalf of the trans people in his community and his family um, and, uh, meanwhile, it was also Ash Wednesday and, and several of the legislators had like ashes imposed on their heads. Right. So he's there like basically begging. So his, you know, for people in his family to have access to the, the, the type of healthcare that they need. Meanwhile, there are literal Christians sitting across the, the room from him who are, who are actively doing this. Right. Um, and that always kinds of st strikes me in these, these conversations and these like mo these moments, um, of basically all at war against trans people that um, it's not just like right wing people doing them. It's that they're like, these people who have like Christian motivations, right? They're people who are um, in one way or another, they're Christians. Like they're motivated by their faith to do these things. And it's bad and <laughs> jacked up. Right. But I wonder how you all think about that. I mean, it's uh, pretty bad, I, th I think, but um, like, how, how do you square that? Like, that legacy of like uh, evangelical Christianity and other types of Christianity, Christianity too, carrying out like awful violence against LGBTQ people, um, in this case, trans people, 
And like, how do you square that though with like the libertarian spirit that you, you yourselves find within Christianity? Like, how does that like um, that weird disconnect and tension exist for you all? Well, it's complicated. Um, is the is the first thing to say um, because I think you're right. Like these people do claim Christianity, um, and I think that we have to grapple with the fact that that they are Christian. Like, I don't think it does. I don't think it does us any good to say, well, they're not really Christian. Like, clearly, they are coming out of this tradition, they are claiming this tradition, and they have garnered lots and lots of power around this tradition. Um, And so, do I think that they are reading scripture and being motivated wrongly? Absolutely. Do I think that, like, the vast majority of scholars would agree with me and not them? Also, yes. And still, we have to we have to deal with this. And I think for me, it becomes like twofold, right? One, it's it's about saying for so for queer and trans folks who find resonance and healing and tradition and home in Christianity, like you can do that, and you can do that in a way that is healthy and life giving and holistic and brings liberation for you and for other people. Like, it's important for me to name that we can claim the liberation of this tradition. And also, it's really important that... I, so I, I think one of the things that has happened is that the religious right has been really, really good about talking about their faith in public, talking about why they're voting for certain things in public and and connecting that to their faith. And the religious left, historically, has been really, really bad at that, right? Been unorganized. They haven't been, um, haven't been articulate about how their faith connects to this justice work. Sometimes it's because they don't want to be like those religious right people. And, like, I get that. And also, I think it is really important for people of faith to be connecting the justice work that they're doing to their faith tradition and being articulate and loud and just as confrontational about that as the religious right has been for years and years and years. I think I think seeding seeding the public square and the connection between faith and justice to the religious right is like hurting all of us and that we have to stop that. Yeah, and I'll say like one of the reasons why I stay connected to this work even as like whether or not I identify as a Christian has ebbed and flowed over the years. Um, is that like, I know that like, this is the tradition that I come from. This is the majority of Americans identify as Christian in some way. Conservative Christianity in particular has an outsized influence on American politics. And so like, this is like, this is where it is and ignoring it or pretending like it's not there or being like, Oh, well, like I'm not a Christian anymore. So like, I don't have to deal with this. It's like, not my problem is like, not, is not actually helpful. Um, but I, but I will say there's, I think that there's like two, two things, two th- issues at play or like, or two approaches that are important, but it's important to not, to not lose sight of both of them. And on the one hand, it's like, it's really easy to think of like anti LGBT stuff as like over there, right? It's the Westboro Baptist church. It's the Ted Cruz's it's the Marjorie Taylor greens. It's, you know, it's not, you know, my parents or my uncle or my friends who are like, mostly on board who would say like, yeah, I support gay rights, but like, they like, well, I don't know about like, well, the bathrooms or like, what about kids? And are still sort of like harboring these things that are infused by transphobia that like, it's important to like 
have those conversations and to confront that, like just as much as it is to like get on Twitter and like rant about some stranger who's never going to read your tweets. Um, so like one is to, is to, to not ignore or shirk responsibility for like the transphobia or the queerphobia, you know, or the like racism, white supremacy, sexism that happens like in your midst, especially like, like for, for men to be around other men who like say sexist things, hold sexist beliefs. Like we really have to like be on guard for those. And also like, we're not going to stop anti-trans legislation in Oklahoma and Arkansas and Missouri by like, having conversations just around our, our, our dinner tables, our Thanksgiving tables. It's like not enough to like, you can't, there's too many of them with too much power to like one at a time, try and have these heart to heart conversations that like, so it's really important to get involved with like strategic organizing to like rob them of their power. So that like your uncle Jim might still like think some fucked up things about trans people, but like, if he can't pass legislation or like that is we have to like be strategic in like interrupting the wheels of oppression. Um, I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Like not just to bandage the victims crushed by the wheel, but to stick a spoke in the wheel itself. Um, that like that, that, it, that is, it's about organizing as well as individual personal transformation. Yeah, that is great. Super helpful. Um, I, as you were both talking, it kind of made me think of this conversation I was in just this week about uh, theology and its role in social movements. And I feel like I have that conversation all the time at work. And the question is always like, you know, what, what good is it? Like, do you find like, especially in ecumenical spaces where there's lots of different Christians, it's like, do you find the minimal amount of Christianity that like everybody can agree on, which is usually a boring version of it that nobody's really excited about? Or do you kind of like, you know, find the the exciting parts of your tradition and kind of risk, I don't know, like maybe overplaying your hand, alienating somebody, but also kind of tapping into to something recognizable and so on. And it just strikes me that like, um, you know, you both are, are thinking about theology in this really dynamic, powerful way and also connecting that with the activism side. So maybe you can help me in my day job. Um, you know, how can we sort of uh, bring that theological um, impulse, voice, tradition, symbols, whatever it might be, how do we bring that into that movement space such that it's not a mirror of the right, but it is its, its own kind of liberating theological energy? Like, how do we kind of square those two things? Yeah, I think we're also both not interested in sort of like a watered down, boring, ecumenical interfaith thing. And so I think that it's like a yes and, right? That Christians and Jews are going to have like distinct theologies, right? And also even like within Christianity, like Catholics and Methodists and Lutherans are going to have different ways of understanding theology and different things that animate them. And even like different Presbyterians are going to care about <laughs> care about different stuff. And so it's not that you have to find like one theology to unite us all right and like that has to be the thing that like ramps amps us up but i think that like if like catholic catholics can get like you like have like their particular catholic faith like fire them up and there's like some catholic organizing and like jewish folks have the the stuff that fires them up and this again like we're diverse there might even be a few groups within there right and then like sometimes we can come together on like specific actions specific causes um around like actual actions right where it's like i'm doing this action from like this motivation because like i believe this about like 
Christ. And I believe this because I believe this from this comes from sort of like my understanding of Jewish law. But like the result is we both are fighting and trying to stop abortion bans. Right. Um, and so like, we, I think like we need our particularities to fire us up and then we can have like coalitions of folks coming together rather than trying to have like one large organization or a large event um, that is like meets everyone's spiritual and theological needs. Cause that's not going to happen. And there, there might be a rally that like we all end up at right to show like strength in numbers. Um, but like, recognizing that it's like a, a, a toss salad, not a, not a melting pot. Right. Um, that like keeping the distinctiveness of all of our various like movements and theologies, I think is, is going to be crucial. Cause otherwise it's, it's like boring and it's like not inspiring. And it's like, like, okay, like peace and love, I guess. Like, I don't know. Like, what does that do? <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I think honestly, like that is one of the things that has hurt the, the progressive church, like in general is this sense of like, we're just going to find, the middle that everyone feels great with and it's, and we're going to call it tradition. And, and then we wonder like why our churches have, are dying. Right. So I think that this, this impulse too, of just like, we just have to sand all of the edges off is not helpful, um, both theologically nor in political movements that, that this kind of rush toward the center usually only helps the people that are already in power um, or the people that already have privilege. And so I'm, I'm, I'd be interested to find out, like, let's, we haven't tried it. So like, let's try a thought experiment where everyone gets really particular and we are even more radical and we demand even more and we see what happens and we see if we can get some new energy into our movement. Yeah. I think everyone is like, why do we keep doing it? <laughs> Cause we all know how. <laughs> yeah. I'm here for it. Um, I've been a part of too many very boring ecumenical <laughs> movement type things. And uh, I'm, Feeling pretty over it. Well, maybe to, to round out the conversation a bit more here, like, um, well, I, I don't know. There, there are a few trans kids in my life um, who are right now facing a lot of discrimination from all over the place. And in, in my opinion, it sucks. I hate it. I hate that they, like, have to put up with, like, the weird culture war bullshit that, that we are, like, currently all enduring. But um, from your perspective, as people who are, like, applying queer theology and kind of, like, asking people to also engage with it. Like, what do you think that like queer theology has to offer them? Um, you know, people who are just now kind of figuring out who they are while they're, you know, constantly under siege from all kinds of other, you know, pieces of the, the culture war. Yeah. I mean, I think the beauty of this is that it connects young people to a tradition, right? It, it engages them in sacred storytelling that has been part of both the queer movement for forever, but also part of the Christian movement um, and I, th- I think that one of the things that I'm, I'm most passionate about is that, you know, we have, we have kids coming out at younger and younger ages, and it's so, so vital that they get connected to queer and trans elders, that, um, that they are connected to their people, be- not just for, so they can understand where they come from, although I think that's really important, but also so they can understand how to survive and so that they can see possibilities of like what it can look like to grow up to be an adult. And I think this is a joy that so many of us who grew up, you know, before the internet or where we had three television channels and no, none of them had gay people on them that like 
we are now in a generation where where queer and trans elders are more visible than ever before, and also where young people seem more separated from them than ever before. Because I think the, the avenues of like coming out and into community don't exist in the same way um, because kids are coming out in straight cis families often who may or may not have other people to connect them to. And so figuring out how we connect kids um, and young people to their communities and then engage them in this work of like, we need your story too. Like it's, it's all of our stories and this, this idea of sacred storytelling um, is a way for us to be in communication across generations and that's like so so powerful and beautiful and profound yeah. and i think for for i mean anyone really but in particular older folks i'm also thinking about who are are coming out and coming into their own i think queer theology is so important because what we talk about and what we ask for like sets the upper limit of what we can imagine and so if all we're talking about is is it okay to be gay and christian that's like the best it could ever possibly be is like yeah sure I guess it's okay. And like, there's a whole, there's a whole lot of in between where it's like, not okay. Or like, maybe it's okay in theory, but like, you should be celibate. Whereas like, if the upper limit is like, random anonymous sex can be sacred. There's a whole lot of space underneath there for like finding holiness, right? I just like on Instagram posted a few days ago, like a picture of me in my underwear. And then some slides about like, how our bodies aren't diminished by multiple connections with people and about how inviting a stranger into your bedroom or into a back room is hospitality and is vulnerable and how casual sex can be holy too. And someone like DM Dustin was like, it took me so long to recognize that I, to accept that I was gay. And I finally like recently accepted that, but I just resigned myself to never having sex. And then I saw your post about promiscuity also possibly being sacred and that is causing me to like question that and rethink that and like actually maybe I like could be a like fully sexual gay person and I think that like the like com like the common knowledge or our gut instinct is to say like oh no like that that's gonna scare people away you can't talk about casual sex being sacred we have to talk about why committed monogamous loving marriages are okay to make space for people and like we've been having that conversation for two decades and some like me being like a hoe on instagram and posting about like finding the sacred in casual sex is like the thing that <laughs> unlocked it for him and i think that like we need to dream bigger than just like ever so slightly more please let us into your club. Please give us some crumbs. Like that's all you could possibly imagine that like, it's so much more expansive than that. And like, not to say that like everyone has to go have casual sex, but like, I want to like raise the bar on imagining what's possible and creating room for all of us to find space in that rather than like the compromise being like, I guess I can be gay, but be celibate. Like that's a, I'm not like willing to accept that. Ken, I think I think going back to to the young folks um, question, I think raising that bar for them too is really important. Of like, it isn't just that you get to live; it's also that you get to thrive, that you get to have a family if you want it, that you get to have friends, that you get to be connected to a community, that you get to have the body that you've dreamed up, right? Like it's all of these things that all of these things are possible. 
Um, and I and I think that the more that we can have these conversations and let folks know that you don't have to just settle for survival, that that there is more that can be for you and that like wanting that um, is is not only just acceptable, like it's it's a good and holy thing. Um, and that we have to be telling stories of of thriving um, so that young folks know that there is there's something for them to grow up into. Yeah. I think that's really, really vital. That's great. Well, I feel like we could talk a lot more. Um, I especially have a lot more to learn from Brian. I'm probably the opposite of uh, what you could call a hoe on Instagram um, in many ways. So lots more to learn. I'm going to have to check out the website, listen to the podcast, um, see what's going on in there. Uh, if people want to continue this conversation, they want to keep hearing from you, reading, so on, where can they do that? Where can they find where you both are? Yeah, so our website is queertheology.com. We got good luck with that with that domain. Um, there's a link at the top to resources that has resources organized by topic for allies, for coming out, for sex and relationships, for transgender theology, for like wrestling with is it okay, for looking for how queerness and spirituality enrich one another. Um, so like browse free resources, listen to the podcast, just sort of search queer theology on your podcast platform. Um, if you want to go deeper, we also have like a handful of workshops and online courses um, on those specific topics around like sex and trans issues and being a better ally. Um, and I think like the most special part of all of this is our online community, um, Sanctuary Collective, which comes with all of those workshops and courses. And then also like a community of like two, 300 people around the world to sort of like ask these questions and go through these workshops together and wrestle with stuff and to like ha talk about big, deep theological questions and also to talk about like silly and fun stuff, like things people are knitting or first dates, um, scary, you know, doctor medical diagnoses. So um, all that is at queertheology.com. We're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all of the social medias. If you just <laughs> search for queer theology um, and then I'm at this is BGM on like all of the places. And I'm at Shannon T.L. Kearns on all of the places. Um, I do TikTok <laughs> badly, but I'm, I'm there. But I'm on the rest You're of You're doing it better than us. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate the, the perspective. It's really cool. I mean, we talk so much about liberation theology on this podcast, but it's really cool to see, just like you said at the top of the episode, Shannon, that these are circles stacked on top of each other. And I think there's like a lot of interesting overlap that maybe I hadn't considered. So definitely learned a yeah, lot. Thanks for having and, us. Uh, yeah, thanks both of you for uh, coming to talk with us. Our pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. We already told you all about it at the top of the episode, so I'm not going to do it again. You can't make me, and I won't do it even if you did. But our intro music is by Amari Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon, and we'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might 
mind if you leave too soon So come on now, it's still early At least I would have 